the eve of the Spalchy Pick Lower Error. Hello and very warm welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Lower Error Podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm here today with Marty Gillespie, Podge Gaffney and Oren Fitzpatrick. Today we're going to be discussing The Paper Bracelet, a brilliant Irish book by Rachel English. And Rachel herself is going to join us a little later to discuss the book. Before that, lads, how are things? Yeah, going well. It's only been eight days in Greece and after four nights in Bucharest here, so... Going well, I'm flying to Istanbul this evening, uh, that's the next stage of the trip, that's going to be four, four nights, and then finally over to my brother in Zurich, which will be class, absolutely loving it to be honest, uh, so I was on my own for the first eight days, basically through Greece, like two days Athens, I was over on a few of the islands then, uh, Syros and Naxos, um, just really, really fun, enjoyed my own company to be honest, and then one of the days of the hike, I bumped into lads from Canada and Germany, and sure. And on the pints of them, and it was, you know, a bit of crack. Seriously, you need that as well. Um, I said, yeah, Istanbul this evening. Um, my cousin spent a bit of time there before, so he sent me on those places to, to check out. I think I'm staying fairly central in the city in a, in a hostel. I got like a nice, a nice private room. How many kebabs have you eaten, do you reckon? <laughs> so in Greece, oh man, it's Suvlaki. I don't know if he's been to Greece. I actually um, had one tonight, Suvlaki. He must have one. Uh, they're just so good. Like I try, I made sure to have them every second night because you can easily have them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you wanted, and you'd be twenty stoned when home. Warren, how about you? How'd your weekend go? Had quite a busy weekend actually. Myself and Claire just left for a nice meal in the city on Friday, and then we had a wedding yesterday. So the a childhood friend of Claire's was getting married, so they had two weddings cancelled over the last couple of years, over the last year, and so they finally got. 25 people together, got the, got the rings on the fingers and we had a little bit of a party afterwards. It's good out crack. It was nice to be out, nice to see all that, all that crowd again. A few beers and a, a, few, a few whiskeys with the, with the bride's father. Um, talking, good. talking about all things Ireland and everything, always fun. So yeah, the head is a little bit dusty today, but that uh, was, was a really great night. And well, uh, congrats again for Rosine and John if they're, yeah. if they're listening. What about yourself? Really? You're away for a, for a nice weekend? Yeah, or went away there to Jervis Bay for a few days, so um, just yeah, a few hours south of Sydney, so it was nice. We would mixed weather, but we kind of stayed in a nice campsite thing. It was like a safari tent, and that was cool. And uh, then stayed in a place called Huskisson for the next few nights, and did a bit of a beach hop walk kind of thing. This White Sands walk was nice. We just kind of walk up the coast, and there's loads of beaches. And But yeah, it was lovely. We you that. could do worse. Sounds great. Exactly, yeah. I think you're in that, uh, we're in the Highlands Beach beach before. They say it's the whitest sand in the world or whatever like every Aussie beach the, the whitest sand yeah yeah I was also at a wedding there this night um, not feeling the better for it now but oh my god it was some crack um, I'm not looking forward to the drive back to Dublin now it was down in down near Burr um, which I don't know in my head I always kind of imagined was uh, closer to the capital than it is there's going to have to be a, a large chicken fillet roll and a big bottle of Lucas in to get me back today. <laughs> Save it would that bring Jesus back, I'd say, from the dead. <laughs> so today's episode is going to focus on the paper bracelet by Rachel English. And Rachel has kindly given us a little synopsis here for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book or else are looking for a little recap to refresh their memories. So the paper bracelet um, is the story of a woman called Katie who when she was much younger she's she's now approaching 70 when she was much younger worked in a mother and baby home in the west of ireland she was a nurse there and she's reached a stage in life her husband has died she's at a bit of a loose end she's kind of going back over her life and she decides that she can help people that she kept some, I suppose, for want of a better word, memorabilia from her time working in the mother and baby home. And she decides that the information she has and the box of information she has includes a number of baby's identity bracelets. And she also kept a notebook of information. And she realizes that what she has could help some people if they're still trying to find their birth mother or find out more about themselves. So with the help of her niece, 
Beth, who's kind of the, the, the technical expert, the, uh, the two of them decide that they can help people. They, they put a notice out there on a forum, on, on a website, and, um, and, and pretty soon the, the, the replies start rolling in. And um, even though Katie says she's not going to get emotionally involved, that she's just going to do the bare minimum, of course she gets emotionally involved. And, that, and that's, that, that's how the story progresses. Yes, that was Rachel giving us an overview of the book and Marty, Oren and I caught up with her a little earlier just to chat all things the paper bracelet. I suppose, uh, Rachel, one of the things I loved about it was, you know, it was really accessible to all generations, you know, and you kind of covered all bases, uh, bases on that, like in terms of from people like ourselves who might, you know, connect more with Beth. But I know that, you know, for example, if I give this to my mother, like I know that she would read it and she would still... She wouldn't feel the the guilt that might be pushed upon her generation, you know, media wise, because she'd be made comfortable by the by the, the style of writing. And just just wondering, was that intentional? I'm sure it was intentional. And how did you manage it? That's uh, what I would. Gosh, that that that's a very good question. Um, yes, having the different generations was intentional, and especially with Katie, I wanted to ensure. Because I find it frustrating myself when I read a book and, you know, somebody in their 70s or whatever is presented as though, you know, they should be sitting in a corner with a blanket over their knees. And um, so I wanted it to be shown that, you know, at 70, she still had lots of life to live. And at the same time, I suppose the dynamic is there because I think I think for, you know, somebody at Beth's age, it is almost impossible to imagine the Ireland that Katie would have grown up in. And then you have the people in the middle, the people who Katie thinks she can help, like Ailish and Gary. And I suppose they're closer to my age. So I, I maybe felt more kinship with them than, than with either Beth or Katie. But, um, but then I remember somebody saying once that, you know, the age you are is an accumulation of all the ages you've ever been, as in, you know, your 15-year-old self is still in there somewhere, as is, you know, your 25-year-old like self. And, you know, all your ages are still in there somewhere. And I think there was a line you had where, was it that the heresies of one generation is the orthodoxy of the next? Yeah, I, I read that somewhere. And I, I think I think it's very true. And the other thing is, I think that sometimes in this country, I'm not saying that there aren't big generational differences, of course, there are so much has changed. But I, I wonder sometimes, you know, maybe they're not as clear cut or as obvious as we like to think. I mean, I, I just sometimes get a bit frustrated when we maybe sort of introduce models from other countries, you know, like say the use of the term boomer or whatever, because if you're talking about people who grew up, say in the 50s or 60s, even into the 70s in Ireland, you know, their life was no picnic. You know, it wasn't easy. And so, yeah, the, the inter intergenerational thing is something that, that interests me a lot. And I just liked the idea of trying, even though, you know, Beth and Katie often have misunderstandings, I like the idea of trying to bring them together to, to have a common purpose. I um I I really enjoyed that. I felt I felt seen as was as the the new term uh, for it. Gary mentioned that uh, all the new generation have either a YouTube channel, a blog, or a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Here it was us reading this. Room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. it's funny. I've just I've just finished another book and. It, it, that comes into it as well about, you know, character feeling frustrated that she can't just do her job, that unless she has a podcast, a YouTube channel and is good on Twitter, that, you know, you may as well retire. And, and I think, you know, if, if you grew up in, the, in, in that kind of time, like even you don't have to be that old. I mean, say, uh, I would know lots of people my age who have, say, Twitter for work reasons. Um, but if I look at the people I was at school with or I was at college with, like very, very few would be on Twitter, which is interesting. They tend to be more Facebook people, which 
I don't know, maybe says something about Facebook. <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And there, there can be the sense of, oh God, why would you bother doing that? But um, yes, I think Gary was feeling a little frustrated. If you've spent, you know, most of your life feeling that you're at the vanguard, that you're out there, that you're the man, and all of a sudden you realise there's all this technology happening and you just haven't a notion. Yeah, that's very good. I was just wondering, Rachel, did you feel a pressure or a burden to kind of convey the attitudes at, at the time and how life was in these homes for I suppose the people working there and the girls who were sent there like did you feel a pressure to convey such a sensitive topic yeah I suppose you do feel a pressure to try and get it right and you know I'm sure there are things that I got wrong but I, I read a lot in advance and I, I had written another book back several years ago, which was also partly set in a mother and baby home, though really a book called The American Girl, though it was really only the first two or three chapters that were set in the mother and baby home. And I, so I read as much as I could and I listened to as much as I could. Um, but, you know, I suppose you can never 100% capture something if you weren't there and if you weren't taking notes yourself. But, but I suppose I, I did my best to try and capture one of the things that mattered to me was that rather than all the young women who were in the home just being seen as this kind of downtrodden mass I just kind of thought well it's important that we see their personalities that you know they had personalities when they went in there and I'm sure they didn't just abandon them at the gate you know some people are still funny and some people are are, are clearly traumatized and but you kind of think well they must they must have formed alliances there must have been friendships you know it can't have been bad as it was it can't have been you know bleak for 24 hours of the day every day of the year you know there must there must have been times when there was camaraderie and there was a certain amount of solidarity between the women there. And, and that's not to take away from, you know, that there must have been awful heartbreak as well. So I suppose that did matter to me to try and to try and make them real, even though obviously, you know, they're made up, they're characters in a book and they're in a make-believe place. But uh, I, I did I did want to try and make them as real as possible, that they, they were young women like any young women and that they, you know, still had ambitions and dreams or whatever, and, and, and that not everything had been stripped away from them. Yeah, I think that was something that, that hit me kind of hardest bit. So was we really got really endeared to, to, the, to the women when they're in the mother and baby home. And we're like, for example, Winnie, when she escaped and that we were cheering for her. But like whenever we came to the realisation that, you know, Greta was Winnie and that like the Winnie, Greta and Linda had, you know, real tragedy later on. And like mm. that really hit hit me hard in a way. And I, I wonder, like, is that, was that kind of to, to hammer home that, you know, this was a, a lasting impact, you know, or? Yeah, um, very much so. It always amazes me that how women had the capacity to seemingly go through that experience, to have their child taken, and then to be sent home again in many cases. And to have to live this make-believe life where you pretend that all of this didn't happen. And I think like, psychologically, that must be so hard. And then in many cases, we, as we know as well, like, you know, women went through life not saying anything at all about what happened. They may have got married, they may have had other children, and they told nobody. And, and you hear stories where it's, it's only in more recent years that some women have felt confident enough to say, yeah, this, this is what happened to me when I was younger and it was a long time ago, but I've, I've carried it with me. They, it's, it's set in the 70s. Would you, have any, would you have had any experience of this growing up? Would you have noticed any of it? Is there any sort of personal details in the book anywhere or is it completely kind of fictionalised? Isn't it funny? I suppose when I was growing up, I was barely conscious of the existence such institutions, even though obviously it was the mid 90s before the last of them closed down. I wouldn't, it's, it's not fair to say that I wouldn't have known anybody who was sent to one, but put it this way, I, yeah, I wouldn't have known at the time. And because there was so much that was not spoken about. By the time I was a teenager in the 1980s, I mean, it was far, far less common for a girl to be sent to a mother and baby home. Obviously it did still happen, but it, it, it was far less common. I think what was more common, my memory of it as a teenager was, was you know, people being essentially 
forced up the aisle. But you know the way it is in whatever time you live, it's almost like if you grow up and know no other way, it's almost like you normalize it for yourself. And it's only in later years that you pause and, you know, and, and you realize what was happening around you. I, when I was a reporter back in the mid 90s, I visited the mother and baby home in Bespera and, and I was there to speak to a nun because I had done an interview with a number of women who um, had been born in the home and were finding it very difficult to get any information about their birth mothers. And when I look back now, kind of, you know, my innocence, I assumed that the place was closed back in 1996. And it's only, it was only later that I discovered that at the time there still would have been a number of women there, that that was the year it actually closed. But um, yes, I mean, I would have been aware of, of such places growing up, but I can't say that, that, you know, it was something that it was an issue I thought of at all until I was much older, probably when I was in my 20s. And maybe then, you know, that was the stage at which when everywhere was closed, that the, the people started to talk about these institutions. Rachel, you mentioned there about the cult ladies. I know you, the, the ladies in, in Bessie, I know you talked about that in your afterword as well. Mm -hmm. And one thing I thought was very interesting, you mentioned you found when you were writing this that you kind of found it hard to balance the writing of, of the journalist and the writing of, of, yeah. of an author. And I was just kind of wondering, how, how did you find that balance? And what, from my perspective, I, I thought that was, you, you struck it perfectly because it kind of had that for, uh, informational tone, like it was, there was a, a sense of learning from it as well, you know? So yeah, I was just kind of wondering how did you strike that balance? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you know the way there's, there's this saying about that you should do your research and then forget about it. In other words, like nobody wants the whole load of facts. But at the same time, you do kind of have to thread them through. So it is a bit of a challenge. And sometimes I would kind of have to tap my health self on the head and go back and delete stuff to kind of say, you know, this is turning into a newspaper article and it's not what it's supposed to be. Like it's, it's a novel. But interestingly, you should mention the women from Vespera it was earlier this year I got a message on Facebook from a woman who had read the book and she said and then I gave it to my mother because she was born in Vesper and I thought she might be interested in it and the woman said oh I know her <laughs> and it turned out that the, the, the woman who contacted me on Facebook that her mother was one of the women I interviewed 25 years ago and she, she sent me a picture of her mother and her father and it was it was lovely it was lovely to see and um, but it was such a nice message and it was funny after all the uh, this, this time she was she was still there so she said she remembered doing the interview. I think it was back around 1996. So um, it's it's funny because because doing those interviews had always stayed with me. It was amazing to be in touch again with with somebody I met back then. That's amazing. It's like straight out of the pages of the book itself. It um, is actually a page, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That somebody gets in touch with you via a website or whatever and says and says, no, you might not remember me, but <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, it was lovely. It was really really nice. I was just wondering then, are many of the characters based off people you met through your career as a journalist or maybe covering the homes or did you try and kind of banish that from your mind and just create completely original characters? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty much made up. I mean, I, I, um, I suppose you always kind of, you know, might take a trait or two from somebody you know, but um, no, no, they're, I can't say that they're, they're anybody I, I ever encountered. I read a good thing recently where where you know an author was he was asked about he'd written a book with a lot of characters in it and he was asked which one was him and he said oh they're all me so mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's quite good like you kind of use bits and pieces of things you know well I don't know anything about being a rock star like Gary but um, I kind of I gave Ailish you know a job as a chambermaid because it's a job I'd done for a couple of summers so I kind of thought well at least I know some of the mechanics of it and I I gave most of them a background in County Clare because it's where I'm from. So at least I kind of feel I know the landscape, even if the town is made up. It's it's for me, for me, it's real because, you know, it's it's kind of I picture where it would slot on, into the map. So, yeah, yeah, they're 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 not really based upon anybody. Uh, I was going to ask uh, that 
was Gary ever on Morning Ireland or, or anybody like him? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I wrote a, I, I, uh, I did my first book, which was, oh God, it was about 10 years ago. It was a book called Going Back. And I, um, I did one of the characters, some of his kind of foibles, I did base on a friend of mine. And the character did do a couple of things that a friend of mine had done. And he joked for ages afterwards about how he was going to send me a solicitor's letter. <laughs> So, but, but no, no, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever interviewed any Gary's, you know, I, um, I've written a couple of books with politicians in them, which are probably, you know, more what I'm accustomed to, but um, no, Morning is Ireland, Morning Ireland is kind of missing a few rock stars. <laughs> Very good. Um, I suppose uh, another thing, and you, you touched on it there about County Clare, and you said earlier on about threading facts through the book. One thing that you, he threaded in quite well as well is plenty of Irishisms and my favourite one was when you were it was discussing rural people's view of dubs and it's discussing uh, thieves and sin and, uh, <laughs> and this and he said if it's, it'll not be long until we're until you're as bad as the English <laughs> and I just thought as a, a Donegal man myself now we would I know my parents, maybe maybe not so much anymore, but would have had a similar view. I remember when I first moved to college, mum wanted me to make sure I had zippy pockets and all my trousers, you know. <laughs> I remember when, you know, I, I, I'm originally from Shannon and I remember like coming to Dublin to, to go get to go to college and I was being, being told by people, you know, you should put your money in your shoe. Now it'll be safe in your shoe. As though every single person on the streets of Dublin is just waiting to rip you off. And because uh, it's funny, you know, now when you find yourself, if you go abroad or whatever, and you kind of ha- you're kind of like nervy about something and you kind of think, well, this is just stupid. I shouldn't be any nervier than I am in Dublin. But it is a thing. Uh, certainly, uh, maybe it's not so pronounced now. But when I was growing up, like there was this perception that, that Dublin was just, you know, full of people who would literally take the jacket off your back if you didn't watch yourself. My mum's a dub and I was still told that going to college, so I think, I think it does persist a little bit. Yeah, there is. And I do remember like putting not just not just notes in my shoe, but putting coins in my shoe. Like, like why would somebody want to steal 20 pence off you? But anyway. I love the humour throughout. I thought really it eased the, the emotional strain the book actually had on me. Um, I found it really kind of hard hitting. Would it have had a heavy emotional toll on you as you're writing it? Or are you able to detach yourself kind of from the subject? I, more so when I was doing the research, when I was reading various bits and pieces, I did, I did find that quite upsetting. But when I was writing it, I mean, you do sound like an awful fool saying, you know, that you cried when you were writing something, but I sometimes do. And, um, and I did when I was writing that book, because I found it, so put it this way, if, if you're not going to get emotional about your own characters, you can't really expect anybody else to get emotionally engaged with them. So it's, it's very, it's hard not to. And, and yes, you know, I did, but I did also, as you say, try and include humour in the way that, you know, I always think you know even in the bleakest places in people's lives there's often humor you know people can be very funny especially when times are very hard and um, so I did I did want to try and include a bit of humor as well but it is it is a very dark subject and um, I think it would be hard to write about it without becoming in some way emotionally involved with the subject matter yeah even though I mean it does sound ridiculous if you say that you were crying over the face of a fictional character but yeah I mean I've recently finished a book that's coming out early next year and it's partly set during the famine and I was just a complete wreck altogether when I was writing writing parts of that is that the letter home is that what that one's called yeah yeah Yeah, very good yeah. yeah, is there any, yeah. can you tell us much more about that or is it a... Yeah, it's, it's the story of three women, one in present day West Clare, one in present day Boston, and then the third, I suppose there are three women trying to, to make their way through life, but the third woman happens to live during the famine. And her name is Bridget Maloney, and she's the character who kind of links the other two stories. So um, they both set out, the other two women in, in contemporary times set out to find out more about, in one case, about uh, something that happened in their area, in another case, about her family. And then what links the two of them is this 
character who who lived during the famine who was she spent 20 in 1845 and it the book follows her life over the next over the next 20 years until she's 40 so um yeah so that's 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 pretty much it it's funny i'm kind of a bit hesitant when it comes to talking about it because i haven't really said anything about it yet so i'm not i'm not practiced enough but um yeah that that's pretty much the gist of the story and, and i did i did you know write it over the past 18 months or so when when none of us were going anywhere that sounds amazing it seems oh, it's the kind of transatlantic stories really appeal to you is there a reason you kind of you often visit like characters in america and then characters in ireland do you find that relationship kind of fascinating or I do. I, I, I do. And I, I think I think if you're from the west of Ireland, maybe less so now, but I think growing up, certainly, you know, we always felt so close to America and everybody had family in America and the connection was very close. And one of the, the sparks for the book, there were several, but one of them was you know that phase during the Trump White House when there seemed to be all these characters who all had Irish names? <laughs> and, and we say, oh God, it's another one of us. You know, Steve <laughs> Bannon and, you know, Kellyanne Conway. And I know Conway was her married name, but, you know, she was, like, her background is, is Irish American. And they were kind of, you know, they were all there with their Irish names. And you did start to wonder, gosh, what's their story? How did, you know, they, they want to build a wall on the Mexican border, but, but you know, how did their people arrive in America? So I suppose that was that was one of the starting points. Caitlin, the American character, her brother goes to work for an anti-immigration lobby group. And so she she decides that she's going to find out how their people originally came to America, basically because she wants to make him squirm a bit. And um, so that's that that was probably the starting point for the book. So, yeah, I suppose like a lot of Irish people, you know, I, I am fascinated by American politics and yeah, so that was pretty much the starting point for it. And I suppose you're right, it, it is it is a theme that goes across several of the books, all right. Yeah, can't wait to Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Rachel, I see that Committon makes an appearance in the, the Night of the Party. Was that kind of like a pre a, a practice run for, for, for this novel? <laughs> or what um, what semblance does it take? Is there any difference in, in, in it uh, in the paper bracelet paper bracelet? Oh no, it's very much it's very much the same place. And I should be honest about poor old Kilmitten. It's where most of the action takes place in the night of the party. And certainly in the first half of the book, when the characters are young, because it's where they're from. And it, I described it in a certain way, because the book starts in the 1980s, and I described its hinterland in a certain way. And, and I thought, you know, that, that it was completely fictional. But I did kind of have a place in mind. And um, then I did an event, a library event at home. Actually, I was interviewing Joseph O'Connor and a woman came up to me afterwards and said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, well, no, 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 no. And she said, Kill me. She said, I was reading your book the night of the party. She said, Kill Mitten, is that Six Mile Bridge? <laughs> I have to say, yeah, it is. <laughs> And I said, though, obviously it's changed a lot since the time I was writing about in the 1980s because it's a complete give them a place. And um, I shouldn't, Six Mile Bridge is now a beautiful <laughs> village. Genuinely, I'm not, I'm not, it is now a gorgeous village. But it's one of those places that has been transformed so completely over 40 years that it is hard to recognise it now as the same village it was when I was a child. When, you know, it was, it was kind of a bit ramshackle looking. But um, so, yes, yeah, so I still got to live again and does it feature in the next book no it doesn't because the action has kind of moved more to West Clare so I have a new collection of invented places oh but actually where it does feature in the next book is I made up a place for the paper bracelet called Hackett's Cross where Ailish's mother Chrissy was from originally well Hackett's Cross has a starring role in the next book so um, I thought if you make up a place once you may as well get a bit of use out of it so um, <laughs> it's, it's 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 and Hackett's Cross is completely made up it's not based on anywhere and it's still as ugly and ramshackle and generally neglected and miserable as it was in the paper bracelet. And I suppose Rachel you know the night, the night of the party is a completely different style of book to the paper bracelet I was just wondering, do you prefer writing one or the other? No, there's a good question. I like a bit of variety. And 
I had hoped after the paper bracelet to write something a bit lighter, but and I sent the first few chapters off to my editor and, you know, got a note and a phone call back to say, can you not make it a bit more like the last one? So, um, so I had to go away and rethink. Yeah, I like I like having, I suppose, a big project, you know, something that's, that, that really takes a lot of work. So in that sense, yeah, I, I, would, I would maybe more so. The, the, the thing is, though, it, it does tend to take quite a bit longer, whereas the night of the party was just an idea I had in my head and I knew I could write it pretty quickly because I felt like I knew the characters and I, I knew, if not the world that they all inhabited, I knew a certain amount about their 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 childhood and that that I was interested in writing about yeah I, I do kind of like the dark stuff as well though I have to say having just finished one book that is it's in places very dark I wouldn't mind writing something very light the next time <laughs> sure I'll see how I get on what is that book out of interest if you, if you would mind so it is actually based around a morning radio program and um, and one of the characters is in danger of losing his job. So he becomes obsessed with, with getting better interviews and he encounters a young woman who he believes has a good story and he becomes obsessed with, with tracking her down. But it's like there, there, is, there is quite a lot of silliness in it. But, and he's a bit of an idiot. But it's just... <laughs> I've kind of gone back to writing it on and off because it's almost, you know, it's almost, it's kind of, it's fun to write rather than, than and I do like writing yellow, I even like writing, you know, dark stories, but, but it, it's kind of, well, this way, it's the sort of project that's always sitting there at the back of the computer and may never get published, but, but it, it makes me smile. So I'll probably persevere with it, even if it never sees the light of day. That's very good. How have you found writing in general during the pandemic? Have you had more time? Has it been easier in ways? Yeah. I know you, you finished your book, so it obviously has gone. Yeah, I know well. some people have found it really difficult. And and I appreciate that, that some people have said, I've spoken to a couple of people who have said they've hardly written at all, that they just couldn't get their head around it, that they found everything just too draining. And I think especially for people maybe who had kids at home, for a prolonged period I think then it was really impossible for them to write but I I kind of felt god there's nothing else to do so I may as well get stuck into this and also you know if you have a deadline a dead, like you know it does does focus your mind and I don't like missing deadlines I mean in most jobs you can't miss deadlines you know if you're teaching like you can't say well I think I'll go in at half ten today because I'm not really feeling it at nine o'clock you know so I didn't I didn't find it particularly difficult I suppose the one thing I would say is there's there was very for for during the two long lockdowns there was do you know the way sometimes all it takes is a walk into town and you notice somebody behaving in a certain way or you overhear something you think oh I could use that there, there was that all that outside stimulation was gone there wasn't anything to steal so um yeah so that was that was what I missed most I was actually just going to ask if you had any um book recommendations or anything that you're reading at the moment yourself you're liking or enjoying this is not going to be for everybody and then I will mention a couple of things that probably are but the first book I'm going to mention isn't for everybody but it just blew my mind when I listened to it as an audiobook earlier in the year it started off as research and then it turned out that it wasn't really helpful for the book I was researching but it was just amazing is a book called which I listened to an audiobook a book called Common Ground which is non-fiction it won the Pulitzer Prize back in the mid-1980s. I know this is a really obscure choice. And um, it's a history of Boston in the United States based around three families, one Irish-American family, one African-American family, and one who, for want of a better term, I suppose you'd call wasps. And it follows a couple of years in their life lives but delves all the way back into how they came their family came to be living in the United States and it's it was just I've been recommending it to so many people like I say it's available as an audiobook it won the Pulitzer Prize the National Book Award everything going in the States in the mid 80s it was even made apparently into a TV miniseries at the time it was fictionalized because the characters in it were so huge um so so that that more like if I was to say you know what one book this year did you did you kind of just you just wanted to start all over again that that was it um other than that the book 
that I've just started and that I'm really looking forward to is the Maggie Shipstead book. The is it Full Circle? Is that what it's called? I have it behind me there somewhere. Um, it's I I'd read her two previous books, especially the first one, Seating Arrangements, which I thought was wonderful. Um, so I've just started that and I'm really looking forward to it. And then there's one thriller that I read earlier in the year that I thought was amazing and thought deserved a lot more fuss. And that was a book called Girl A. It's a book about a family. I suppose you could say it's loosely based on real events. It's a, it's a book about a family who are essentially held captive by the father who's extremely religious but in a very very strange way and it's one of the family who you, you learn at the start was the one who managed to escape she and she moved to america and she's returned to britain years later because her father has her, her mother has died in prison and um, her mother was also imprisoned afterwards and she basically needs to sort of decide what they're going to do with the old family home and everything which which you know, should it be pulled down? And anyway, all the, the family unite and they're all damaged in their own ways. But it's like, I thought it was absolutely super book. It's a book called Girl A. It was just, I thought it was amazing. It was, again, it was like something that I read quite early on in the year and it really stayed with me. That's funny that you mentioned the, the Great Circle as well. I actually bought that book during the week. Uh, I came across oh, okay. it in a bookshop and I just love the sound of it. So I'm looking forward to reading that now. Yeah, she's she's I read her two previous books um the first one seating arrangements is based around a wedding but it's kind of you know at a wedding but there, there there's 40 years of history um that keeps coming up as well and then she her second book was called astonish me which was about two ballet dancers um in the United States in the 1970s and again I loved it she's just I just think she's a fantastic writer um Maggie Shipstead I just just love her books so I've been kind of I've been doing the final edits on on the letter home so I've been my head has been a bit distracted but um, I'm really looking forward to, to, to getting into that now and and then the other book that I'm looking forward to reading is is Claire Keegan's new book the one the one based around uh a, a guy in a, a Magdalene laundry in the 1980s so I know that's kind of you know going back to similar territory but but I am looking forward to reading that as well. Very good yeah, that's a good mix of books there. I do read quite a bit of non-fiction as well like, because another book that I read during the year was the um, Patrick Radden Keefe book about the uh, the family who were behind the development and the marketing of Oxycontin and you know that god that was that was just an amazing book as well just amazing this one i'm going to be a bit more like gary gary said at one stage sometimes strangers could ask the questions that friends couldn't so you know <laughs> this is a bit personal you, no problem you don't have to answer it all but i noticed in the afterward rachel when you're discussing um you know mother and baby homes and the attitudes to it uh and when you were writing the word God or you're writing the word he, the pronoun for God or possessive pronoun his for God, you gave them all capitals. And I was just wondering, like, is that kind of, was that, or is that a remnant of your upbringing or is it like a reflection of your personal faith or was it just habit? Habit. And then believe it or not, it, it is a style thing. And, um, it, the publishers, and it's the same with the UK publishers. So like it's published by Hachette in Ireland, but it's published by Headline in the UK and, and kind of a subsidiary of theirs called Mobius in America. And they also use the capital G and the capital H. And they also use a capital M for mass. But if you notice, and there was a debate about this as to whether a rosary should have a capital R or not, and they decided no, that that should be a small R. So it's funny, like the things that you have debates about, especially because the copy editor, as in the kind of the final editor, you know, the person who literally, you know, rounds up straight commas and, and brings out the style guide and says, no, we don't use that word, we use this word. Um, I think in all my books, they've always been English. So they, and you do tend to get a lot of notes saying, because in the, in the, the one that really cracked me up about, there's two that cracked me up 
in the, the letter home is one is why did you refer to her as Kate Middleton and you know she's the Duchess of Cambridge and I thought god you can imagine I, an Irish person saying the Duchess of Cambridge all right and the, yeah and the other one was I've never heard of this red biddy stuff I looked it up good lord because <laughs> the character says something along the lines of I was slightly jarred that's all the way you're going on you'd swear I was off my head on Red Biddy and the poor copy editor had to go and look up Red Biddy to make sure that this was actually a thing but uh, and that an Irish person would refer to it but the Kate Middleton one did make me laugh because you kind of think these things are they're, they're tiny little uses of language but but sort of the differences between us and our, our closest neighbours it's impossible to imagine an Irish girl in her 20s referring to the Duchess of Cambridge but uh, but there you go that is hilarious yeah, yeah there are always things like that I wish I wish I could remember more of them but those are the two that stood out with the next book because uh, you do tend to go, get a note saying a reader outside Ireland will not understand this and that's fair enough you know there's no point in being obscure but at the same time you don't, you think, well, what is the phrase that a person would actually use? And um, so, yeah, it's, it's funny. You do, you do t- tend to get a bit of that. All right. I'm Going sorry. back to the God and him. That was, that was me, but then it was them as well. That's very interesting. Do you find in terms of the editing that your background as a journalist is a benefit, big benefit for that? Like from, I guess, writing radio reports years ago and it has to be taught and every word has to be accounted for. Do you find that helps you a lot with your writing fiction? Yeah, I, I tell you where I think it helps most is I know some people really dislike being edited, um, as in they think, you know, that's the way I wrote it and that's the way I want it to be. Whereas I think if you're used to working in daily journalism, you're used to your work being corrected for you, basically, or, or examined. So it actually, it actually it's so, so being edited doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I quite like it. If I feel somebody can come in and improve something and have fresher ideas or say you know lose this or have more of that I'm quite fine about it yes and the other thing is it does mean that I'm a bit pernickety as well about you know I am the one compliment I always get from editors is that my copy is very clean so uh, which it does tend to be because I do it does does annoy me if stuff is all over the shop very good uh, probably helps with um, the, the deadlines as well I suppose you're used to tight deadlines it does yeah it does it doesn't you know that's good that's good you kind of think just get it out there we can pretty it up later but um, <laughs> better 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 to get it down than to kind of sit and think about it forever just when you're saying there about having the English editor do you I don't know if you remember when Rachel Brackmore won the Grand National was it last year the year before and she was being interviewed after afterwards and the, the English uh, reporter, you know, asked her, how are you feeling? She's like, she said, I can't believe I'm after one in the Grand National. And the next day, the headline was, I can't believe I'm in brackets talking when after one in the Grand National. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't be grammatically correct, could it? <laughs> I know there's there, there there are there are lots of things like that all right that uh, that the, the do pop up but the use of after and I, I find sometimes if you put after in a line in the book it sounds almost like it sounds almost stage Irish but then when you listen to people it's what we say all the time you know have you done that yeah I'm after doing it and and you don't but when you write that down sometimes it does look almost stage Irish like putting sure at the start of a sentence and you kind of think god you know I've written Darby O'Gill and the little people here but if you talk to people they do start the sentence when I was going there and then I said to myself sure why would I be doing that and but when you again when you write that down you kind of think oh good lord you know Barry Fitzgerald is going to be reciting these lines so um yeah yeah there are all of those misunderstandings very good very good I find and this is why I've kind of part of me is always reluctant with American characters or whatever because do you find that when books by non-Irish writers are set here or they have an Irish character there's always something that you go no no they wouldn't have said that like the one I came across recently was a character who said a quick novena and you kind of think no the clue is in the name if they take nine days, have you never been to a novena? But, <laughs> but obviously an English, an English editor isn't going to spot that. You can't say a quick novena. They're long things. Are you almost precious about what your Irishisms that you put in the book, like your expressions and stuff, are you conscious of getting them right? 
I always I always start with too many and then strip a few of them out. And I am, like I say, I am conscious with with because in the next book, like a lot, you know, a third of the book is an American character and she's purely American and her family are purely American. And I did find that I had to spend a lot of time reading American books and that just just to kind of get into the way that people speak, like the, the subtle differences. You know, I mean, obviously the jokey one is the completely different use of the word ride, but it, um, but there are so many others as well that you kind of think, oh God, you know, even I found with the American character myself using the word fridge, no, 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 they'd say refrigerator. So um, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Thanks so oh, much God. for joining us. You're so generous Thank with your you. time. And we all apologies agree. to all our listeners in Six Mile Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have made it clear that it has changed a hell of a lot. It yeah, really, yeah. really has. The other thing I should perhaps say, to put this in, we put a little context on this. I'm from Shannon. Six Mile Bridge is only about five miles out the road. But when I was going to school, obviously the kids from Six Mile Bridge came on the bus. And we used, like when I look back at how we used to treat them like we thought we were so sophisticated because we were from the town and uh, I kind of you know we'd be kind of looking at each other going do you understand what he's saying and of course then I came to Dublin and I realized that in Dublin like everybody from beyond Newlands Cross is viewed as like an absolute muck savage so like <laughs> all those years with my Shannon sophistication and, and you know it was all just wiped away so that's that's the six mile bridge context yeah very good <laughs> Thanks, Mel, Rich, and look, not we're, at we're, all. Uh, Thank you. Looking yeah. forward to reading your, your next one now. Is yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks over. a million. Yeah, sure have to come back for that. Stay in touch. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Rich. Well, of course. So, have a good one, Rich. Yeah, have a thanks good a million, and you. Bye-bye. Yes, that was Rachel English talking about the paper bracelet, and thanks a million to Rachel for coming on the show. We really enjoyed that chat. Podge, you were away in your travels in Europe while we caught up with Rachel. Uh, what did you think of the book? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, no, uh, I did. I did enjoy it a lot. As I said there, like, enjoy is a funny word to use because it's such a grim story. But, I mean, um, it was a difficult read, but I thought it was handled really well. Like, such a sensitive subject was handled really well by Rachel. Uh, I liked how it was written. I liked how it was jumping between eras. I liked how she put a voice to these women and gave them strength and character and almost like a you know, a backlash or in rebellion to the, the people who put them down, who took their names, who took their voices, all this thing. And yeah, I mean, as, as a book, it is uh, like how people can overcome such horrible circumstances and still see some light. Um, I thought I took a lot from that, you know, even even moments like it, the book itself is, is obviously very, uh, it's, a, it's a grim story, but there was still so much like empathy, compassion, love, humor throughout. And as I said already, Rachel handled it so well. All right, lads, this brings us on to our usual rate expectations. Podge, I'll start with you. What's your rating for the book and why? Yeah, I mean, for, for reasons I've already outlined, being able to, to handle such a difficult topic so well, so elegantly, I think is a decent word, that I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this book an eight, to be honest because um, I was constantly making predictions and having to change them. It made me feel quite, you know, angry a lot of times. It made me feel very sad. It could have been anyone, you know, it could have been, it could have been our aunts or our mothers. It could have been anyone, you know, and you go, you're, you're kind of constantly putting faces to the characters and, and your heart was breaking for them all the time. And yeah, so I think we mentioned that in the podcast before uh i think it might have been our first one maybe the tesla planet sons if a book makes you feel at all whether it's laughter whether it's sorrow anger it's it's a powerful thing so yeah i'm going to give it a strong eight i think rachel did a great job and i'll definitely be reading more of her books um, yeah 100 i'm actually the famous podge and um and i'll just when i finish this i thought yeah this is definitely uh, an eight for me um for all those same reasons i thought it was quite you know, very evocative. And I ended up calling Mam. I had a good chat with Mam about it. I like I was discussing this topic uh, with Claire, like I was kinda did a bit more reading into it, all sort of stuff. And um, so it really got the it really got the head, the mind spinning on on the whole topic and, and the history and that sort of thing. And as as Podge said there, isn't that what you want from a book? And uh, I thought it was well written. I thought uh, it, it was 
so brilliantly dealt with um, with, with such a, an emotional book dealt and I think that's that's the exact word project very very elegant and it's, it's a weird one because like you know you're actually saying are you are you enjoying your book sort of thing so you're like I don't know am I enjoying it but it's I couldn't put it down at the same time you know so yeah no, I thought it was I thought it was quite exceptional um, and not not something that I would ordinarily read I generally try and dodge those sorts of topics as you say you know reading can be an escape but I think it's it's important every now and then to, to get yourself to read something like that to, to really challenge yourself but yeah for that reason mate. very high score lads I'm actually going to copy you both and an eight was what I had in mind too I think for the reasons you've both outlined something a topic that maybe people don't like to talk about head on but this book really makes you think about it a lot and as you said have conversations with people about it I thought it was really fast paced like the book itself I thought Pudge, you mentioned read almost like a mystery or a murder mystery. I really like the flashbacks and forwards. Even when it was dealing with really heavy stuff, which I ordinarily find quite hard to read, I was still finding I was, I was turning the page just quickly, kind of. There's so many strands uh, that were tied up very well and a lot of topics, even outside of the modern baby homes and religion, like there's domestic abuse, storylines, and that clash between the modern thinker, Beth and Katie, and some of the revelations at the end of the book just... There was so much about it that I really liked. And as Pod said, I definitely read more of Rachel's books having read this. And I've already recommended this book to a couple of people who I know are reading it at the minute. So yeah, it's a strong eight for me as well. I am going to give this book a nine. Um, I really did love it. Now look, I I, I was thinking about whether I give it an 8.5 or a nine, but I think like with just the topic it covered and how how well it was dealt with, you know, it dealt with it really gently, but never left out any anything that would have changed your mind on the topic as as you know our our age people would have looked at all the stories. Sorry, Gary, Ailish, Brandon, Katie, Beth, Patricia, Greta, all of them how all their stories came together so well in the end. Um and how well how how much I cared for the characters, you know. Um I would find it hard to give it any less than a nine. You know, it's been a it's been a while since I cared so much uh, about a book or has been as invested in it. You know, you kind of you kind of I suppose because it's part of our history. You know, like like in terms of Ireland. You know, you kind of feel. Me, I know I, I kind of have maybe like a responsibility to to really understand it, and I feel like this book really really gave me a good just very good perspective of it and yeah look I, I have to give it a nine I have to give it a nine well yeah really high scores all around lads so that's an average of 8.4 for the paper bracelet from the lower era lads which is a great high score thanks so much to Rachel English for joining us we absolutely loved that chat and really enjoyed it and hope you all do too so we'll be back in a couple of weeks with In Cold Blood by Truman Capote and in the meantime as usual keep an eye on our social media and lowerera.com and we'll see you soon 